You are listening to a podcast from The National. Kuwait City, Riyadh, Doha. This has become the revolving door of diplomacy in the Qatar crisis, which is approaching its third month. Now, Turkey, led by President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is taking its turn mediating the row. The countries involved, namely Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt, issued a new set of principles for Doha to follow. In return, Qatar's Emir Tamim Thani has gone public on the subject in the first televised address by a head of state involved in the crisis. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi. And I'm joined by Dr. Zia Morel, resident fellow at the Center of Historical Analysis and Conflict Research, to discuss what effect Turkish President Erdogan has on the crisis. Thank you for joining us. Um, thanks for having me. So, Erdogan's not the first to be doing this brand of shuttle diplomacy. We had U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson before him, and Sheikh Sabah al-Ahmed before that, all trying to mediate the efforts. The only difference was Turkey has clearly taken sides with its rapid deployment of Turkish troops on the Qatari base. On the other side, as part of the 13 demands issued in Jude, the boycotting countries demanded that Qatar expel all Turkish military forces. I'd like to know what your thoughts on, on what he might be trying to achieve. I mean, what's, what's, dif- what's different this time around? Um, I think um, he has been consistent on two things. One, um, he does not want this problem to continue, this crisis to continue or escalate. Um, and two, he has taken a stand on the side of Qatar because he sees this as a political maneuver to corner Qatar. And, and, and Turkey and Qatar shares a lot of regional um, policies, etc. Um, but that automatically undermines his desire to be a mediator in this crisis because he's a stakeholder in it as well. Um, obviously, both Egypt and UAE um, have been critical of Turkish relations with Muslim Brotherhood um, and, and voices from Saudi Arabia has always expressed um, concern over Turkish relations with Iran. Um, And over Syria and over development since the Arab Spring, both Qatar and Turkey have pursued policies and networks and relationships which Saudi Arabia, UAE and Egypt have found to be um, problematic for them or the way that they read the region. So that automatically limits um, President Erdogan's role as a mediator. However, um, the issue of Turkish troops in Qatar predated the crisis. They were already scheduled to be there. So the base opening in Qatar is a larger framework that we've seen Turkey pursuing opening of um, forward military bases. Um, there's one in Somalia and now in Qatar and other parts of the, the world as well is pursuing um, such bases as well too. So it predated the crisis. But with the crisis, um, they definitely brought the deployment of at least some troops um, forward, and now I think there's a bit less than 200 or so Turkish military personnel partaking in quote-unquote exercises with Qatari military, which is nothing but basically a diplomatic maneuver on its part to assert a um, solidarity with Qatar. So, I mean, does does Turkey view pressure on Qatar as a precursor to what might happen at home? I mean, Tur- Turkey has relations with the Muslim Brotherhood. That was listed as one of the terrorist groups that the boycotting countries demanded Qatar to sever ties with. So my question is, does, does Turkey view Qatar's defense as its own? Um, there's definitely an element of it where Turkey reads a lot of these um, as an affront to the same policies that it followed and definitely um, as a problem for its own relations. I mean, Turkey has better trade relations with UAE, for example, than it has with Qatar. Turkey wants to sell its defense um, equipment and new um, industry products to Saudi Arabia 
and etc. And Turkey still wants a working relationship with them. But definitely between Egypt and Turkey, the question of Muslim Brotherhood since the ousting of Morsi has been a sore point. Now, to what extent Turkey has um, a- alignment with um, Muslim Brotherhood um, vis-a-vis um, their political framework, their agenda, that's, that's debatable because AKP and Erdogan's team aren't really members of Ikhwan. They don't necessarily have the same political theology, but there's definitely an affinity towards them in seeing a military takeover of the government in Egypt. And now in Qatar, what they see is another maneuver to oust uh, family and, and, and um, an emir, which they have a very good personal relations as well, too. So I think for President Erdogan, the personal ties he has with Qatar, um, as well as the financial engagements with different groups within both countries, um, and, and gives that kind of affinity to an attempt that they see as cornering of another country that they share term concerns as well. And let's not forget, both Turkey and Qatar have had ambitions to be a major player in the Middle East, to shape the direction of the developments, and have both seen an opening in the region with the advancement of Muslim Brotherhood political actors after 2011. And, and it turned out to be not a sustainable reading of the region, and it turned out to be futile as an opening. So I think rather than a pursuit of some sort of ideological solidarity to Muslim Brotherhood, Turkey has seen an opportunity and now turned to be a sour and a, with a very high price, high price tag. But I think they will always have an affinity towards persecution of their members. But if you remember in 2014 crisis, for example, when Qatar had to expel some Muslim Brotherhood figures, Turkey has hosted some of them along with the UK as well, too. Well, talking about both countries' reach, I mean... Turkey has close economic ties to both Saudi Arabia and the UAE. You mentioned that. But its strategic partner yeah. is now Qatar. So I want to know, how will it balance the two? Uh, and what could this trip have done in shedding more light on this convoluted relationship? Um, I think the primary outcome and even the driver of this trip seems to be more about containing a possible fallout for Turkey and encouraging a mediation, an expression of a desire to solve this crisis. Um, in fact, President Erdogan had said that if Qatar is willing to, uh, they're more than happy to suspend the project of opening a Turkish military base if there was a request from Qatar. Um, and even today, in statements yesterday as well, too, President Erdogan keeps referring to how in the Muslim world there needs to be more uh, solidarity and this shouldn't continue, etc. Um, so the underlying, I think, assumption for him is that, um, yes, Turkey definitely needs UAE for trade, way more than it needs Qatar at this stage and Saudi Arabia, but also even though Turkey has a working relationship with Iran, just like Qatar, out of geoeconomic and energy interdependencies, there is always a question of the overall implications of it. And Turkey definitely needs the Saudi Arabian presence in the region to balance Iran as well. If you remember, in one of his trips to Saudi Arabia, he expressed very harsh stance on Iran and Iran's activities in the region as well, too. Um, so Turkey finds itself in this really tightrope walk. On one hand, um, there's Qatar. Definitely a country that President Erdogan has affinity with and shares some policies and especially the desire to be the new kid on the block to share the Middle East. But there's also Iran and there's also Saudi Arabia. And all of this happens in a moment where U.S.-Turkish relations are precarious. Um, Turkish-European Union relations are at a low for a decade, at their lowest for the last decade. And Turkey is facing a complex relationship with Russia as well, too. So it's in Turkey's interest to minimize this crisis as quickly as possible. You, you, you mentioned that, you know, Turkey has complicated relationship with both Europe and the region. And I mean, where do you and Erdogan has made decisions to to 
become closer to Europe at times in the past. And, and now, like you said, it's at an all-time low. So where do we find Turkey? I mean, is it leaning more towards the Middle East? Is it, is it, does it find its interest in the region or outwards? I think that's been a question that is 100 years old, not just for Erdogan. I mean, geographically, it's clear that it's trapped between major political and cultural and linguistic fault lines. Um, it's trapped in very strategic straits and seas around it. Um, so therefore, it will always have to play um, this very complex balancing act between dif- different co- um, competing demands. Um, it cannot give up on Europe, although the European Union and accession into it is now at that end. Definitely needs a new framework to explore a working relationship and normalize tensions with it. Um, it cannot ignore Russia. It cannot afford to fall off with Russia, even though, if you remember, shooting down of a Russian jet was a very clear line of um, showing up, uh, putting down a red, bond, red line with Russia because it needs Russia for its own economy and gas supplies. It can uh, it struggles with Iran because it's competing for influence and power in its neighborhood in Iraq and Syria. But at the same time, once again, for economic reasons and for energy reasons, it needs to maintain a neutral working relationship with Iran. So that means that Turkey is never really going to be turning east or west. It always has to be this um, unique kind of positioning, trying to balance competing demands. The problem with the AKP government's current policies isn't that it's necessarily trying to balance all of these things and reach out. It's just that it's being inconsistent and it is sending complex messages and it's not necessarily um, upholding um, a certain standard of governance and the context in Turkey democratically um, has been weakened a lot. So that's causing a lot of concerns and it also limits how they're able to respond to these crises and challenges because there's not much foreign policy discussion within the country or guidance, etc. Um, so there is definitely a crisis um, in the short and medium term about where is Turkey heading domestically, but also how does it see its foreign policy post-Arab Spring emerge? At the moment, it's ad hoc. What it does in Syria, it's only responding to a crisis. What it does with Kurds and PKK, it's only responding to an immediate threat. But at the moment, the entire political agenda seems to be dominated by the shift into presidency in 2018 or 2019. And within that um, framework, then the government's only response can actually be ad hoc and short term because its main drive and agenda is very different. Dr. Zia, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Another story that's been making headlines in the region is the breakdown in Kuwaiti-Iranian relations. The Kuwaiti Ministry of Foreign Affairs last week demanded that Iran reduce its diplomatic presence following the disappearance of 16 convicts charged with spying for Iran. The 15 Kuwaiti nationals and an Irani were convicted with espionage as part of the Abdeli terror cell discovered in 2015 with 144 kilograms of explosives. The move indicates a move away from Tehran after years of Kuwait trying to mend relations and act as a bridge builder between Iran and the rest of the GCC. I'm joined by Courtney Freer, a research officer at the London School of Economics Kuwait program. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So Kuwait has been working since 2006 in earnest to bridge the gap and improve relations between the Gulf and Iran. How will this news affect Kuwait's role as mediator in the region? Is is it likely to put an end uh, to its neutral stance? 
It's a good question. I think it's it's early to know for sure what's what's going to happen, but certainly with the downgrade in diplomatic relations, the Kuwaitis have, have asked for a number, I believe it's 15 people of the Iranian embassy to leave Kuwait within 45 days. So you have this kind of immediate downgrade of diplomatic relations between Iran and Kuwait, and so this, the, the Iranian response will kind of dictate to what extent this is a permanent reaction or to what extent this bespeaks a change in Kuwaiti relations with Iran long term. So we saw back in January 2016, after the attacks in Tehran of the Saudi embassy following the execution of Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr in Saudi Arabia, we saw the Kuwaitis breaking, uh, removing their ambassador from uh, Iran at that time. So and so I think there has been there have been breaks before, so it's not the first time we've seen this happening, but Certainly, with the timing now, with kind of the rest of the Gulf very much talking with, <laughs> with the rest of the Gulf, um, kind of fomenting anti-Iranian language and very suspicious of Iran's role in the region, this could signal a, a larger sea change in terms of Kuwaiti relationships with Iran. I mean, how would you view Kuwait's position uh, prior to to uh, the decision last week? I mean, was it just really neutral, or did it lean more towards Saudi Arabia? I mean, it is part of the GCC, obviously, but was it trying to uh, maybe really create a neutral stance between the two countries? I think it genuinely was was a pretty neutral stance, that, at least in the past few years. That said, there have been tensions before between Iran and, and Kuwait, and particularly following 1979, following the revolution. Um, throughout the 1980s, there were a lot of kind of... Um, linked terror attacks inside of Kuwait. And so you had a lot of suspicion at that time of Iranian activities and, and Iranian agents inside of Kuwait. And so certainly during that period, there was there was a lot of, of tension. Um, I think following the uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq into Kuwait, um, we saw a lot of ex- um, efforts from, especially the Shia population of, of Iranian heritage inside of Kuwait, helping with the resistance and helping rebuild Kuwait. And I think that rebuilt a lot of trust between the two. So I think really since that period, you've seen more or less uh, efforts to, to maintain a middle ground, I'd say. And I think that Kuwait genuinely, um, I think Kuwait genuinely does try to take that middle ground a lot of times in foreign affairs. I think we've seen this especially under um, this year because he does have a lot of um, foreign affairs experience. He was the Minister of Foreign Affairs for least about 40 years before taking the throne. And so I think that you have someone in power who who knows foreign relations, knows how they work, and is very cautious in terms of not making any sudden moves unless he feels the need to do so, I'd say. Courtney, I mean, can can you give us a bit of an idea of how Kuwait views its Shiite uh, minority? Historically, relations between the two sects in Kuwait have been less strained than in some other Gulf countries. And how might this affect the relationship now considering that 15 of the 16 convicted were Kuwaiti nationals? That's a good question. It's, it's a tough one, because I think what we've seen most recently, following in particular the mosque bombing in 2015, which is, of course, was of a Shia mosque, you saw a lot of increased unity in this rhetoric of coming together and we're all Kuwaiti, regardless of sect. And so now this kind of... And, of course, the Afzali cell was discovered only a couple of months after that bombing. So now, now you do have... Uh, it's certainly a challenge um, because there is this idea of, you know, whether there's a fifth column of, of Iranian agents inside of Kuwait and whether it's larger than than we've thought before. I mean, historically, though, as you as you mentioned, the relationship with the Shia minority in Kuwait and, and the larger Kuwaiti population have been pretty stable. So certainly, you have 
six members of, of the current parliament who are from a Shia political party, or political bloc, rather. And so you do have representation in parliament of this minority, which I think is very impressive and, and in and of itself. Um, notably, that bloc has, has, seen, has been seen as close to the regime, as very much supporting a lot of regime policies as a means of demonstrating loyalty to the state. So I think you'll probably see a lot of rhetoric coming out of that block, that political block in particular, about um, you know their loyalty to the state, the unity of Kuwait, and, I, and to what extent people believe that it, it's difficult to know. But I do think there'll be efforts to kind of to separate these 15 Kuwaiti nationals from the greater Shia population. So you mentioned how uh, six members of parliament in Kuwait are Shia, and a lot of a lot of members, uh, political uh, figures in Kuwait, are asking that the the Shia leaders in the country speak to the Shia minority in Kuwait to to tell them, you know, to to call for uh, national unity at this point. So, I mean, how important do you think that is? I think that is important, and I think it, it's it can only help the situation to make these statements reasserting national loyalty and national unity, especially at a time when security is seen as, as very much under breach. So I, I think at the same time, it is difficult because, you know, it's saying that implying that a Shia in Kuwait is necessarily disloyal is problematic in and of itself. You know, this idea that Shias in Kuwait are necessarily a fifth column is not the case, of course. Um, so I guess that would be the resistance to making such a statement. Mm. But at the same time, I just I don't see it um, being anything but productive in mm. terms of getting past things, and also in terms of separating the rest of the Shia population from these 15 people. So uh, Saudi Arabia seems to commend this move. And I'm wondering, how does this change Kuwait's relationship with Saudi and uh, its seemingly more aggressive stance towards Iran? So I see the issue with the Abdali cell as somewhat distinct from the DCC crisis. Now, these trials had first come up last year, and so now we've seen the overturning of some of these sentences just this week. Um, that said, of course, greater isolation of Iran is something that the Saudis are very much promoting, and in particular since the summit in Riyadh with, uh, with the U.S. president. And so I think that the relations between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia may get better on account of this, but at the same time, I think they were already... Um, I think they were already okay. I think the Kuwaitis throughout the GCC crisis have managed to walk a a middle line and try to mediate the situation rather than picking sides. And so I think in that way, they've managed not to alienate kind of either the Qataris or the Saudis. So I think this move, it it will probably um, make the Saudis happy in that there is more adherence to this Riyadh summit that was spoken about in May with uh, Donald Trump. And so it could lead to greater relationships. But as I said, I think they're already doing fine. So, okay, so how does how does Kuwait move forward from this? I mean, is this an indication that relations with Iran might become colder and will remain that way? I think it's hard to say. I think we need to see what the Iranian reaction will be. And I think certainly you're seeing certain stories coming out in, in the media, in the Kuwaiti media, especially about, you know, the Abdali cell having met inside of the Iranian embassy in Kuwait. And so if there if links between the state and this Abdali cell are found, then I think certainly we'll see a longer term uh, problem a longer term break in relations between Kuwait and Iran. If not, and and if there is cooperation on the side of the Iranians in, in helping bring back the Abdali cell, which I, I don't really see happening, then 
things could change. But I think this probably is a broader sea change in, in terms of relationships with Iran. And I think um, it remains to be seen kind of what their reaction will be. Another potential reaction inside of Kuwait could be greater security measures. So we had um, the last parliament pass the law demanding DNA testing from everyone inside of Kuwait. And so this was to have a database for, I, I imagine, situations like this where there are fugitives so they could be easily found. So you may see more laws like that kind of come to the fore in an effort to, to shore up security since there has been a breach. I think it's too early to tell to what extent this is a, a long-term break, but I think certainly for now, um, pending any kind of progress from the Iranian state in terms of helping with the Abdali cell, things won't change. Thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us today. All right, cool. Thank you so much. It's great, great to be on. Closer to home, we have a story and video of how the heaviest woman alive, Iman Adil Ati, has made incredible progress in her battle against a rare thyroid condition. The disease, which she's had since birth, saw the Egyptian woman grow morbidly obese and bedridden since childhood. She arrived in Abu Dhabi's Burjil Hospital just 10 weeks ago to not only address her weight issues, but also a slew of medical ailments resulting from a lifetime of being overweight. I'm joined today by Nick Webster, a reporter from The National, who met Iman in the hospital in Abu Dhabi. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to meet you, Nasser. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was great to see Iman yesterday um, actually looking more like a, a healthy person. I mean, the last time we saw the videos and the photo of her arriving from India, where she'd had uh, substantial um, bariatric surgery to remove uh, what was reported as close to 300 kilograms in weight as a result of this childhood condition you mentioned called uh, lymphedema, which uh, caused her body tissue to swell out of control from uh, a, a young young age. Um, so to see her wheel herself into the auditorium where she's presented by doctors from Bajil Hospital um, was quite something. Uh, but in all honesty, Nasa, the, the biggest change I could see wasn't just her weight. I mean, obviously she was uh, a lot smaller than uh, the last time you know, she was... Um, put out there publicly. Uh, it was a smile on her face, which was most striking. I mean, it was she seemed happy within herself. She was engaging with those around her, um, and it's uh, it's a it's a captivating story, really, one which is uh, is going to develop further. I think. You told me that uh, she, you know, she's had this since childhood before the show. I mean, you told me also that she got a stroke when she was eleven. Um, I remember, yeah, as you were saying, a big part of what they were dealing with were her, um, obviously, her physical conditions but also her mental uh, uh, health and I mean are they are they actively working with psych psychiatrists and whatnot to to improve that state yeah they are she has regular counseling every day <coughs> alongside a, a speech therapist and obviously a clinical dietitian who manages her intake of calories uh, to the ninth degree um, there's a little bit of criticism back in India about uh, her overall care by doctors I mean doctors resigned at the hospital where she had the surgery because of the, the controversy around her being used as a, as a PR machine for medical tourism there. Um, and here in, in Abu Dhabi, I mean, she seems happier. I mean, it's, it's hard to get that response without speaking to her, her family about uh, her general progression since leaving Mumbai, but uh, she seems to be in a better place, yeah. And uh, the general speech therapy in itself, I think, is more engaging, and those around her um, can generally... Um, uh, get an understanding of how she is mentally. She's starting to interact with those about her, I think, and she's got a, a, a full sense of worth now, which I think is, is something which she's learning to adapt with quite well. There are uh, political dimensions to this story. I mean, she was in India, like you said, uh, before she came to the UAE. She was born in Egypt. She is Egyptian. I mean, how does this factor into the relations? Uh? Yeah, I mean, medical tourism is huge business. It's a global business. Uh, Dubai in itself is trying to make itself a hub for medical tourism from 
people all over the world to come there and use high-class facilities uh, alongside the hotel culture there. So um, it's big business, and India is famed for its uh, its medical tourism, with people going there for for surgeries and knockdown prices by you know qualified surgeons and doctors. Um, so when these cases arise and they are so unusual, they do uh, attract a lot of global attention. As did this case, it headlines all over the world. Uh, and some saw it as being quite controversial by using a man as a as a PR machine for the hospital's uh, profit, rather than worrying about her own welfare and uh, and the future program to get her back to Alexandria in Egypt, which is obviously the ultimate goal for doctors here in Abu Dhabi now. I mean, like you said, this is clearly an extreme case of a worldwide issue. Uh, obesity has more than doubled since the 1980s, according to the World Health Organization, and especially in the Arab world, it's growing exponentially. Hospitals. Uh, have been made to address this problem. I know a lot of weight loss procedures like uh, the balloon and, and, and yeah. uh, gastro bypass. Yeah. <coughs> I mean, she's clearly an extreme case, but uh, surely this hospital is gaining a lot of knowledge and clout from having her and having to deal with her as a patient, right? So I was just wondering, I mean, how does this uh, help you know, medical progression in the UAE? Is this a learning experience? It is very much a learning experience, and it's very important to underline the fact that Eman's case wasn't as a result of overeating. Uh, obesity in itself is um, a result of a contribution of, contribution of factors. Uh, it can be stress-related, anxiety-related, um, uh, a sedentary lifestyle, obviously, and, and diet is a major factor in that. But Eman's case is, is, is unique, as we suggested. Uh, and what doctors are learning here is just how to manage somebody after having extreme bariatric surgery and how to manage their, their well-being, overall well-being, and their mental health and their recovery. Um, but I think doctors are also very keen to to work with their man in the future here in the UAE to try and show the dangers of overeating and what obesity can do to people. Uh, and it is it is crippling, no doubt about it. What's the, uh, what's the next step? What's the end goal for Iman? Okay, well, doctors are working round the clock every day. She has about 30 uh, minutes a day of physiotherapy and speech therapy. She's constantly getting stronger. Um, her mother and her niece came over to see her for two weeks earlier this year, which was hugely important for her. They didn't recognize her, you know, how well she progressed. Um, doctors um, are looking at maybe a 12-month goal to get her back to Egypt. Um, it could take less. It could take longer. They really are sort of taking every day as it comes at the moment. Um, but what they would like to do is trying to get Iman out into schools to try and spread the message of healthy eating and uh, how people need to think about their lifestyles and, and the end results and, and what it can do to you. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Nice talking to you, Nessa. Thanks. I'd like to thank my guests, Zia Morrell, Nick Webster, and Courtney Freer for joining me today on another episode of Beyond the Headlines. You can find this and all the podcasts from The National on iTunes and on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thank you and goodbye.